Hey everyone. If you like this podcast, go behind the paywall to get privileged access to the smartest minds in finance. Visit realvision.com slash rvpod and use the promo code podcast10. That's podcast10 to get 10% off our essential membership for the first year. Join the Real Vision community and learn how to become a better investor. And now to the top analysis of today's markets. Hi, everyone. Today, we are going to take a deep dive into the subject of MMT, modern monetary theory. At the in-person meetups we had over the, about around last month, uh, a lot of you were asking us to cover this topic, so we went right to the source. With me now is Warren Mosler, president of Valance and one of the main proponents of the MMT School of Thought. Hi, Warren. Good morning. Good morning. Good to be here. Thanks for, thanks for being here with us. Um, so let's start a little broad, and then we'll work our way down, because we have a probably a lot of different viewers on uh, watching this and who will be watching this. So for those who may not be familiar with the concept, what is okay. modern monetary theory? What, is it, what does it suggest? Okay, so that was the name given to this particular school of thought uh, maybe 10 years ago on uh, one of my colleague Bill Mitchell's blogs, and it stuck. And we talked about it, and we didn't exactly know what it meant, but people were using it and spreading it. So we said, why not, you know, and there any publicity is good publicity. So now it's modern monetary theory. Uh, it's, it started off as, well, it is, it, it's, it's an analysis of uh, monetary operations, basically uh, central bank operations. And I think the first thing it did was turn over the idea that the federal government needs to get money to be able to spend. Every textbook, every congressman, uh, every financial writer would talk about how uh, in order to spend, the government would have to collect taxes and what it wasn't able to collect in tax or didn't collect in tax, it would then have to borrow from the likes of China, leave the debt to our grandchildren, all to be able to spend. You know, however, I consider myself kind of an insider in monetary operations. I grew up on the uh, money desk at Bankers Trust, primary dealer back in the 70s, was the 1970s, and uh, visited the Fed regularly. And, you know, everyone inside the Fed, everybody in monetary operations know that, knows that that is absolutely not true. They all know, we all know that the funds to pay taxes, the funds to buy bonds, government bonds, government securities, come from the government. They come from the Fed. And the way you, they look at it inside the Fed is they have to credit the bank's account before they debit it. You can't, and they call that a reserve ad. So the way they say it is you can't do a reserve drain, which is, which means the system, the banking system can't make payments to the government without a prior reserve ad. Okay, so what they're saying is the government has to spend first, and it does so by instructing the Fed generally, or the Fed does it on its own, but uh, it, it first has to credit uh, member bank accounts, and then they can be debited for payment. So it's kind of like the uh, movie theater. Nobody uh, thinks that the movie theater has to collect the tickets first before they can sell them. Everybody knows the movie theater sells the ticket first and then it collects it. So it's the same thing with the U.S. dollars. The, the U.S. government doesn't, you know, the dollars to pay taxes come from the government. So it has to spend first and then taxes can be paid. It has to spend first or, you know, or when, but it has to, which is a form of spending, but it has to spend first and then government bonds can be paid for. And so the sequence, what, what I did was showed the sequence, 
the understanding of the sequence to be completely backwards. And all the implications of a backward sequence, you know, were just wrong. And they were um, keeping viable policy options off the table because of this assumption that we have to get the money first. So if you look back at the um, Obama administration when it wanted to do what they call the stimulus package, for one thing, their advisors, his advisors said we need two trillion. They cut it down to one trillion because it just seemed like a horribly big number. At one point, the president and Secretary Clinton flew to China, who they thought were our bankers, to sort of make sure we could borrow the money to pay for deficit spending. Uh, Paul Ryan was there saying, if we do this, we're going to be the next Greece. We'll be at the IMF on our knees trying to borrow money. And I think it was Paul Krugman had a big document on the president's desk about how interest rates would go up. And you know, we had all these things that follow from an understanding of a government that has to get money to be able to spend and not the other way around where it spends first. And then now the system has the money to pay taxes. You know, in fact, um, the operations people, the senior people at the Fed, they'll tell you their job is to what's called offset operating factors, which is to make sure that any technicalities, which where the banking system might not have enough dollars to pay government, to pay the government, they do things to make sure they do, like repos and that type of thing, to add reserves, to a prior reserve ad, so then there can be a reserve drain, there can be payments to the government. So anyway, now we come to COVID about eight years later, and suddenly there's like this talk of $1 trillion, $2 trillion of deficit spending, and there's no mention whatsoever of Greece. And they're not talking about the grandchildren, and they're not talking about President Biden's not flying to China to see if we can borrow the money. It's not there at all. The only thing they're talking about is it may be caught, it might cause inflation. And a little of the debate started with President Trump, where he said, hey, the government just prints the money and it kind of caught everybody like deer in the headlights. It's like, yeah, it does. And, and the whole, so the whole debate shifted. Uh, by the way, he had a uh, MMT informed advisor, apparently, I didn't know about it at the time. Uh, the whole debate, the, the dialogue shifted from solvency, the US might go broke, to the spending might cause inflation. Mm. And that's a very, very different discussion. And it's, a, and it's a different risk. You know, the risk that you might drive up prices is very different than the risk that you're going to bankrupt the country or anything like that. And so I'll do a little victory lap here until somebody give you, give you the benefit yeah. of burden of proof saying that that wasn't because of the emergence of modern monetary theory, which been promoting that idea for 30 years. Uh, now, uh, I have to give a lot of uh, credit for getting it across the goal line to uh, Stephanie Kelton, Professor Kelton, my uh, colleague of since the 1990s, uh, who was a um, got an appointment as the um, head chief economist of the Senate Budget Committee under Bernie Sanders, which was a breakthrough. It was the first time anyone had taken this at all seriously, mm. and then through her efforts. Uh, the understanding spread. And then she wrote her wildly successful book, uh, The Deficit Myth, which has been everywhere. And, and um, that got the awareness to the level where it is today. Right. So if it's not a solvent, do, do you think the idea that it's a solvency issue is now gone? Now that they did it and, and they saw what happened, is that now out of the conversation? I, I think so. You know, right now there's a debate over the debt ceiling. Yeah. Where if we don't pass the debt ceiling, 
we might default. But nobody's saying, well, even if we don't pass the debt ceiling, we can't pay the bills. There isn't. They, they all know you just vote and, and everything's okay. So I think if that solvency was still there, one of the objections to the debt ceiling extension would be that, look, you're pushing the government closer to default. I haven't heard that. All right, now, yeah, what bothers me about the debt ceiling, let me just toss this yeah. in, is that it's hitting this debt ceiling uh, is a lot worse than the media has, or any of the financial reporters have discussed anywhere. I just haven't seen it. When I talk to some of our uh, firm's clients and ask them, these people get global coverage, they haven't seen it out there either. And that is, if the government, we've had shutdowns before where the government doesn't make payments and people don't get paid and the economy might slow down a little bit, but then later they do get paid and it's sort of okay. So they, they understand that it's kind of a delay or a disruption in the normal course of business. When you, we, but we've never hit the debt ceiling it, because when you hit the debt ceiling, it, something very dynamic happens. Yes, you can now make a payment because it, it, it would um, tax revenue hasn't come in and so you don't have it. So you're not allowed to increase the debt. So you can't make a payment, but a lot, if not most of the government's revenue is based on transactions like income taxes and that type of thing. And so if the government doesn't make a payment, that immediately reduces revenues, which would immediately say, okay, now you can't make that many payments, which immediately reduces more revenues. And it spirals down very quickly and it spreads as things stop, government revenues stop and the deficit, the debt can't go up. So the spending has to just fall lockstep with the drop in instantaneous revenues. And so you could see a total collapse of GDP of 10 and 20 or 30% in a week, right? As opposed to a government shutdown where if the government doesn't spend and the revenues don't come in, the deficit just goes higher. The debt just goes higher. It's not, that's not the limit. And so you'll come out of a government shutdown with a higher public debt, but you know, not this catastrophic drop in debt in government spending, not this dynamic, I don't know, you might have a better way to explain it than I do. I'd like to really get the word out there that the, the risks of hitting this debt ceiling have not been, are not understood anywhere uh, in, by Republicans, Democrats, or the financial press, that it's more than just a stop in spending. It's a dynamic downward spiral that's almost instantaneous. Hey, everyone, we're going to take a quick break right now to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. I think we all know by now, things are pretty fucked out there for most of us. You see, whether it's currency debasement, rising real estate prices or wages that never go up, it's really hard. And one of the most popular things we ever did was that series How to Unfuck Your Future. So we're going to do it again. March 11th, March 22nd. We'll discuss the problems at hand, no holds barred, and then we'll give you all the tips you need to unfuck your future. It just costs a dollar to join Real Vision to get access to all of this content. Go to realvision.com forward slash the future. I'll see you there. Let's unfuck your future together. Which is frightening, and we yeah, yeah. we should throw in we we just yeah. saw how quickly it sounds almost like a version of counterparty risk, but not really. Right. Just when that's everyone right. That's right. right when everyone's so afraid yeah. of the next payment that's not going to be made a revenue that things just kind of grind to a halt because nobody's sure anymore about things that were always right. 
Well, well, this is by law. If the revenue number is down, the spending goes down. Well, that knocks the revenue down, which means the spending's down. And it happens all at once. It's not like a two-week delay to discuss anything. Right. And the worry, we just saw what happened yeah. with the bank runs, is now right, in the age right, of right. mobility, these things right. are are very, very rapid. Yeah. You're well, right. This, no one is talking about that. Why aren't they talking about that? I don't, I don't know. I don't know. You know. Maybe it's because I'm talking about it. <laughs> I'll, take, I'll take it personally. As, as the contrarian would say. Uh, right, but right, do you right. think it's because they just don't think that, that that they'll go the route they've gone before and just shut down the government and drag it on, drag it on, and, and that they just uh, will not hit the debt ceiling? Is that why people... No, I think they just haven't thought about this, the, the nature of the risk. It's like if you have something in the backyard and you're afraid if you might, you don't want to step on it, and so you walk around it. But, you know, you, you think it's a stick. Well, I don't want to break it or something. But then you realize it's a landmine. And, yeah. and you, you don't know it. So you're avoiding it. You don't want to do it. But you don't realize how bad it is. Then you don't realize it's a nuclear landmine or something like that. I think it's you really know, important so, you say yeah. this because everyone I ask about it, we get a lot of viewer yeah. questions. Yeah. Almost everyone I ask about it basically tells me it's a nothing burger because it's going to, it's a lot of politics. It's a lot of political right. theater. Right. And it'll get resolved. I think it will. I think it will. Right now they're talking about extending it and rolling it into a shutdown or something. But you so, say they're playing with a bomb that they don't understand. Yeah, exactly. Or they're I think playing they chicken in, a, yeah. in a, an environment they don't understand. Right, right. The risk is much higher. And I think if they understood the risk, if it was publicized, they, they wouldn't even, they wouldn't have gotten this far. They'd look for something else to do rather than this. This is like a very, very different, uh, this is catastrophic, instantaneous catastrophic risk. And they're, they're, nobody's looking for it. It's, mu it's information that is not being discounted in the market right now. You know, so you'd say Oof. credit default risk is cheaper than it should be. Wow, <laughs> okay. Put options. So, you know, says, not not says that the I buy them. It was, was there at the beginning of the creation of the derivatives market. So I'm going right, to right. pay so, attention when you tell us that. Yeah, Warren. I think the chance is near zero, but I don't, but it's, but, but the risk is much higher than anybody realizes. Well, I think when anyone looks across the landscape of Washington, um, yeah. It's hard to assign zero risk to anything, <laughs> anything yeah, right yeah. now. So that that's a yeah. that's a worry. Well, I'm I'm yeah. happy you brought that up. We're yeah. gonna go ahead. We're gonna chase that down and, and talk to some people about that. Um. Yeah. So if we so if we go back to MMT, yeah. if this is not a solvency issue now, yeah. it's more of an inflation concern. What's going right, to happen right. to prices paid CPI PPI? However, right, we right. measure that in terms of what the markets look at. Mm -hmm. When people look at the experiment of MMT in the policy response to COVID. Well, stop right say, there. Stop okay. right there. It's, which is exactly what they say, what you said, the experiment of MMT. MMT is a, a framework for analysis. It tells you that you can't debit an account without crediting right. an account. So how, what kind of experiment? Okay, so when words, they did the policy, forget right, the experiment. Right, right, right. When right, they just right, right. did policy. But, but that was a good point you made because that's how it's being promoted in the press as Oh, the failure of it, of what MMT yes. did or something. I didn't yes. do anything. Just tell you that there's no there are no spark plugs on a diesel engine, so stop trying to change them. Oh well, you know. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so go ahead. Yeah. Okay. So, in the wake of the policy response to COVID. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Then the concern, or not the concern, everybody, you know, the response yeah. seems to be, well, then you unleashed this upward uncontrollable upward surge in prices. And that's, that's, right, that's the right. danger of following, or that's the danger of that acknowledging policy, yeah. <laughs> yeah. that MMT. So explain that to me and, and explain where yeah. we're getting the, it wrong. So look, yes, but I'll give you the short answer by um, the government can spend as much as it wants in 
at pay any price it wants to and can cause as much inflation as it wants to. That's a policy option. And so they exercise their option to spend however many trillion dollars, realizing that it might cause prices to go up. And I think the Fed has attributed something like a 0.5 of the CPI annual increase to the increase in deficit spending. They attributed almost 4%, I think, three to four to the increase in energy prices around the Ukraine war, the spike in oil to 120, the spike in natural gas up to $9, and the pass-through of all that. And then they also had supply constraints and because of COVID that caused uh, transportation costs to be higher and startup costs and things like that. So that, that's all in there. And that's all been acknowledged. And um, they made the political decision that whether they knew it or not, that it was worth it to keep everybody solvent, to keep everybody fed, to keep things going the best we can through COVID in exchange for a policy that increased the price level by maybe a half a percent to 1% a year. The rest of it was going to happen anyway because of other external events. And you can debate whether that was the right policy or the wrong policy, but it's a one-time event. What The other uh, understanding from modern monetary theory that comes from what I just told you is that the whole idea of inflation is it's a series of one-time events. It's not you do something, you make one false move, and suddenly you're Venezuela or suddenly you're Zimbabwe. Mm. Okay, so you do this, prices go up a certain amount. It's not going to happen again unless you do it again. It doesn't like just trigger this runaway thing. And, and that comes from the understanding that the government, the Federal Reserve, okay, has, uh, I'm going to say it this way, it's not quite right, has the dollars we need to pay our taxes, all right? They all come from the government. And so it is the monopoly supplier. Now it doesn't, what it does to, when the, when the government pays us, they just change the number in our bank account. The same way a scorekeeper at a card game would change the number in your account. So it doesn't come from anywhere. So when I say, you know, they don't have or not have any dollars, but they have the spreadsheet. They have, they're the scorekeeper. So they, um, we need our accounts credited. We need to get paid at the macro level so that otherwise taxes can't get paid because that's the source. And, and so they're setting terms of exchange uh, at the point of spending. So they say, okay, the tax liability is going to be $5 trillion this year. And if you, what well, we say, well, how do we get the money to pay the tax? Well, oh, well, serve in the army and we'll give you $50,000 a year. Become a Supreme Court judge and we'll give you $250,000. Sell me an airplane and I'll give you $2 billion, whatever. So what the government does, it's, it's, it's in a position of being the single supplier of the thing we need to pay taxes. And that is the source of the price level. Mm. And that, and that is without that, there's no explanation for where the price level comes from. And the mainstream models do not have a source of the price level. They don't even have money in their models. They just have relative value stories. And what they do is they say, well, we don't know the source of the price level. So we'll just start with today, this morning's prices, yesterday's closing price. And we'll tell you, what makes them change or, or you know, what's going on. So we have the CPI where it is. And with today's policy, we think it's going to go up 0.3 next month. But they don't know why it is where it is, except it's because it went up 0.3 from the previous month or 0.2 mm. or whatever. And well, where'd that come from? Well, it came from the previous month. So they, all they have is an infinite regression because they don't understand the ultimate source of the information for absolute value rather than relative value is the fact that it's, it's a monopoly. And everybody, if you took microeconomics 101, you learn monopoly in your first 15 minutes, it's the easy one. 
that oligopoly took a few hours and then you spend the rest of your life on competition, asymptotes and calculus. But for monopoly, you don't need any of that. It's the easy one. Well, the money's the easy one. Okay, and uh, they know the monopolist is price setter. If you have the monopoly for all the electricity in New York and nobody else can supply it, you set a price, 15 cents a kilowatt. You don't go to the market and say, okay, we'll sell you 2 billion kilowatts, all you homeowners. We're going to bid for, have a continuous bidding process for uh, electricity. You set a price and let, let the quantity adjust. And that's what monopolists do. That's the path of least resistance. Well, the, the government doesn't understand that. And, and the analysts don't understand it. And the economists don't. They never, it's never dawned on them that that's the case. But that's an, a very important contribution from modern monetary theory. So we know the source of the price level. We know that the price of electricity changes only when the electric company changes. If, if their costs go up and they don't raise price, the price doesn't go up. They have to sit down and vote on it. We know that the Fed has to vote on interest rates because they're the monopoly supplier, the single supplier of bank reserves. And if they supply any extra, they have nowhere to go. The rate will go to zero unless they pay interest on reserve or unless they provide an alternative like treasury securities, but they set that policy rate. So they go to a meeting and they take a vote. It's not the market determining the rate. Now you'll hear, uh, well, you used to hear that got put, got dismissed a few years ago with my debate with Robert Murphy, but the Austrian School of Economics used to say, we, that's the problem. We should let the market set the rate. Well, there is no such thing with floating exchange rate policy, which we have today. That is the case with fixed exchange rate policy, like a gold standard or Hong Kong or Bulgaria, where they fix your exchange rates, where the market can set interest rates. But here, it's a government monopoly. The Fed is a supplier of reserves. The system needs them. They set the price and they vote on it. So at each meeting, they vote up, down, or unchanged. It's the same with the price level. We're going to take another quick break to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at caskers.com. If that's the case, so who, so first of all, do you feel that inflation at yeah. these levels is bad for the economy? Okay, Should so, they be doing something to address inflation? And then yeah, how so, do they do that, given what you just yeah. said? Who should be doing so that? So you got three things in there. I'll do in reverse order. So it's a political decision. And there's been no economic study that's shown that levels of inflation hurt the real wealth of the country or the economic growth. They affect distribution, who gets the money and who doesn't. And uh, But it's, they're just changing the numeraire. And you have countries like Argentina now running 100% inflation and uh, low unemployment and good growth. Okay, so it's been going on for a long time. And so it, it doesn't do that, but people don't like inflation. So it does a lot of political damage. Okay, President Biden is uh, taking a lot of heat for allowing the CPI to go up. So and he could lose the election based on that, like other presidents have. So it's, mm -hmm. it's political poison and people, I've noticed or observed would much rather have unemployment than inflation. 
In fact, when there's 10% unemployment, which is high, 90% of the people still have their jobs and they want to hire somebody to mow the lawn or fix their plumbing. People are competing to get it and they get a good deal. They, they like that. It's a little diabolical, but that's the way human nature has worked, you know, for the years. So when you get to low unemployment and suddenly I have to pay $80 an hour mm -hmm. to get a plumber, it's like, could you live on that? Well, no, but I shouldn't have to pay that much. You know? mm -hmm. uh, to change it. So from a personal point of view and from a political point of view, uh, the politicians are better off with higher unemployment and lower inflation, I think. Interesting. That, okay. That's, that's my... I mean, it's not MMT or anything. That's just the way I look at the dynamic. Now, the other thing is we're using this word inflation, but there, it's a very casual, casual, casual word. It does, it's kind of a catch-all, isn't it? I yeah. Mean, you know, if um, the price of, I don't know, cars goes up, we have car inflation. And, uh, so it's like uh, if the price of food goes up, we have food inflation. It's, it used to be a continuous change in the price level. Okay, well, then we had CPI, Consumer Price Index, which is a very uh, practically oriented political tool to make sure to see what people's standard of living is. And if it goes up, we know people are struggling and whatnot. And that became inflation. But that doesn't fit the academic definition at all. So when you say inflation this or inflation that, if you were asking me for real proposals, I'd have to ask, okay, what specifically are you looking at? Do we want to alter the consumer price index. And if you say yes, I say, well, we can just start reducing the tobacco tax and that'll go down. They say, mm -hmm. yeah, but that's not what I want. Okay, but that's what my question was about originally. What is it we're trying to do? And you can't get a good answer from any of the people in authority to what that is. They just kind of go along with, well, everybody knows what it means and it's too high and we got to bring it down. You know, So there's, it makes it difficult for you to, for me to answer a question specifically about what I would do about inflation when you can't tell me exactly what it is and what the target is, right? Right. And I'm not, I'm not trying to duck the question, but I'm just no, it makes that's no, the it reality. Makes yeah. So if, yeah, if you yeah. have a hard time answering it, how is the Fed has been hiking rates saying they're doing that yeah. in order to bring down inflation? I know. So they're using this casual language to do this. And they're looking at, they tell you what they mean by inflation. It's the uh, consumer price index. It's the, uh, you know, the... Uh, what they call it without food, ex food and energy, the core mm -hmm. index. It's the uh, personal consumption expenditures, that measure of you know, price index. And they've, they've got all these price things that they're looking at all together to get an idea of what's going on in the economy, which then brings me to the next thing that I've introduced, which I hesitate to call it MMT because um, it's nothing that isn't mainstream, but it's also nothing that any of the other MMT proponents are, I'm out here alone on this, okay, <laughs> which I verified at a last talk I had in front of an international group. I said, is anybody else on this? And they go, no. So, <laughs> all right. But um, our debt to GDP ratio with COVID went up dramatically from like 50 or 60% to 120. But what went up even faster is the debt held by the public because a lot of that debt is social security and things like that, which doesn't make any difference, doesn't have any effect on the economy. But the debt held by the public went up three times from like 35% to 105. Okay, so now I look operationally back to the core understandings of MMT. How, does, how do monetary operations work? What does the Fed actually do when they raise rates other than tell everybody? What things do they do? You know, Do they just sit around and rates go up? What they do, 
is they start paying more interest on the public debt that's outstanding. And on a lot of that now is in the form of something like six trillion of the 25, 23 trillion held by the public is in the form of excess reserves of the Fed because they bought treasury securities and what they call RRP, which is like just money people have at the Fed that earns interest. So they pay more interest on that pool of dollars. Okay. And the treasury pays more immediately on their new treasury bills. There's auctions every week. There's new securities that come out every week. So the, the, the only thing that the changes from the government side of the ledger is deficit spending goes up to pay more interest on the 23 trillion of public debt held by the public. And the impact of that is three times what it was in the last cycle. It's always happened, but the public debt used to only be, you know, a third of what it is now. And so, yes, they paid this interest. And I used to say that had a big effect and, and it did, but now the effect is three times it's been magnified. And so now a year ago, I said, okay, with debt to GDP this high, we are just going on a wild spending spree of deficit spending every time the Fed raises rates. When the Fed raises rates, that's what they're doing. They're causing the public debt to go up. They're causing the deficit to go up. And right now, the deficit spending is something like 7% of GDP. That's a very high deficit. It had gotten up to 15 for COVID, which was like World War II, was a, you know, very high. And, but then it collapsed. As soon as people went back to work, they stopped collecting unemployment insurance. We had all these countercyclical reasons why it all came down. So it was one-time things that went away and it had gotten down to three or 4% and the economy was collapsing. We had two negative quarters, you know, a year ago. And then the Fed started raising rates because of the inflation and the deficit started going back up. And right now, I think the interest expense is substantially higher than the military budget, which also went up by the way which is almost 900 billion. I think uh, the annual rate of deficit spending when you, on interest, when you include the amount the Fed's paying is up to 1.2 trillion. Now, if we left rates at zero, it would have been on the way to zero. Instead, it's 1.2 trillion and climbing. And it accounts for something like half of the deficit spending. And they're going to be raising rates again, and that's going to add to the deficit spending. And that adds to demand. It adds directly to people's income, to to your savings, your net financial assets, and supports the economy. Deficit spending so always they, supports so, the economy. So they're raising rates. Yes. juicing the economy. Right. They're like drilling holes in the boat to let the water out. <laughs> something like that. I'm trying to come up with the right analogy. Yeah, the right analogy. Throwing <laughs> kerosene on the fire or something. <laughs> yeah, that, it maybe that. Maybe that's it. So, yeah. <laughs> but 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 in in every do yeah. you. Th do you think that they know this and they're just not saying it? Because the entire point of this is to be hitting the brakes on Right. That. They've got the brake and the gas mixed up. I don't think Chairman Powell either knows it or will consider it. Somebody asked him about the fiscal effect of deficits, which is what this is. Yeah. Fiscal impact. And he said, we don't look at that. That's up to Congress. We just look at the monetary side. Now, that's a little bit odd because they're, they're the ones causing it directly. Now, so the Fed... Just, you know, at their meeting, they've unilaterally and mostly at the direction of the chairman increased deficit spending to something higher than the military budget, okay, without vote of Congress or anything else. And they've increased the spending to fight inflation, right? And, and you know, what's worse is, you know, I'm a progressive economist, but uh, this money, interest goes only to people who already have money and in proportion to how much they already have. 
So it's the most obscenely regressive form of juicing the economy you could possibly imagine. So how so how Reagan so look because like they a, own like a how, liberal. How, why is that? Because those people own treasury bonds because they are they have uh, you know, I wrote I wrote a book I caught and I used the word innocent fraud that I got from John Kenneth Galbraith, which was his previous from his previous book. And it's kind of like more damning to call them ignorant than to call them, you know, uh, having done it by design. And so I'm going to say they're doing it out of total ignorance. If they want to argue with me and say, no, I'm not that stupid. I knew I was doing this by design. Fine. Go to it. But I think, but you're right. That's the question. I, I From the people I've spoken to, which has included meetings at the Fed, you know, not, not in the last few years, but before that, I, I think it's out of ignorance. I don't think it's out of design to do this. I don't, I don't, I've never had any sense of this conspiracy theory type of thing where they're trying to help their constituents. I've met with Chairman Bernanke. I found them to be entirely like honest and transparent and, you know, trying to do the right thing, mm. but of course incapable because he didn't have the understanding of even how the Fed works. So I, I wouldn't call him competent in that source, but I would not call him, I'd call him like a good person, maybe like a, you know, a B student who studied real hard and got A's and, and is trying to do the right thing, serving his country. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't question his, I mean, his integrity and his, it seemed to be outstanding. And the same with uh, Chairman Yellen when she was there. I met with her and, you know, very high quality person, but uh, in terms of monetary operations, I mean, you wouldn't hire any of them to make coffee in your office type of thing. They right. just don't know. Right. It's, it's not a world it, they've which, ever been associated is, with. Which is kind of, yeah. shocking to even wrap your head around. I want to ask yeah. a question. We have a yeah. question related to this exact yeah. point yeah. Uh, from Harry. Yeah. Uh, you point out that each rate hike from the Fed will tend to increase the flow of funds from the government sector to the private sector through yeah. what you just explained. So yeah. rate hikes might be net stimulative. The question, yes. is there a limit to this process? Okay. So I was in Argentina a year ago at the central bank. We were invited there to and I walk in, he says, you know, I've been following you for 10 years, so you don't have to introduce yourself. That was kind of nice. And I pointed this out in pesos rather than dollars because their interest rates, they just raised them to 30%. And all these pesos they're paying, it was like 20% of GDP. I said, that's, they're, hit, they're going straight into the foreign exchange market and taking the currency down and causing your inflation, which causes you to pay more interest. You know, so you're in the same kind of spiral I was just talking about. He said, well, yeah, you know, I know, and his associate had some paper by, mainstream paper by Sergeant Wallace from the 80s. It said this shows the same thing, that uh, when debt to GDP gets too high, then you can't use it to fight inflation because the fiscal impact dominates. He said, but, you know, we're under the IMF umbrella. We just borrowed money. We've agreed to keep the interest rate higher than the inflation rate, so we have to keep doing this. I said, okay, I guess it's, you know, it's your country. And so after we left, the inf inflation rate went to 40, so interest rates went to, they raised rates to 45, and then inflation goes to 50, and they go to 55, and inflation, they had, they'd gone to like 70, and they were at 75, and then I just saw inflation was at 100, and they just raised their rates again to 80 or 90. And you say, like, where does it end? <laughs> yeah. Well, that's the question. If you keep and, doing the same thing yeah. and it's not having an impact, then... Well, and their, their unemployment keeps going down. So it doesn't cause a recession. Flooding the economy with money doesn't cause recession. Now, there wasn't a single forecast a year ago that didn't say we'd be in recession today, right? And yeah. you had the leading indicators and the uh, 
yield curve and the stock market peaks and all these things that tell you you're going to have a recession, these are all market forecasts. All those prices are in different levels of market participants who truly believe that the rate hikes will cause a recession. Otherwise, the prices wouldn't be there. When you see interest rates lower as you go forward, that's because these people buying and selling rates of money at that price. Both sides have this belief that these rates are going to uh, cause a recession. And if they don't, the Fed will keep raising it until they do cause a recession, and it's going to be even worse. And that's the path we've been on for a year. And um, it just hasn't happened. It's happened the other way, and it's, I think it's a huge case of confirmation bias. And they start looking at things along the way, you know, you know the ISM for manufacturing drop two-tenths or something. Yeah. But then it goes back that, up. It's not rate hikes, at, Fed rate hikes that are causing yeah. the recession. What would cause the recession? Do you not see one happening? And if we do, what is the cause of it then? Well, I look at the last recession, 08, big one. COVID was different. Everybody just stayed home. But 08, we had um, the deficit had dropped by 2006 to 1% of GDP, at which time I wrote this deficit's too small to support the credit structure. And I would expect... GDP to start decelerating. And that's when housing started decelerating and everything else. And they just let the deficit get smaller and smaller because when, you, when you're in a growth uh, um, phase, uh, revenues go up because people's income goes up and they pay more taxes and transfer payments go down. And so, uh, and at the same time, the Saudis decided to raise oil prices. They set their OSPs higher and uh, spreads against benchmarks higher and oil prices started going up. And finally, when oil got to 155 and the deficit was down, now when oil goes up that high and it, it had gone up from, I don't know, 40 or 50, that's uh, like a big tax on the consumer that gets sent overseas and it doesn't get spent. It's a big chunk of unspent income. So it's like the government tax. It's like a tax on the consumer and everything collapsed. And then the weakest links are Lehman and Bear Stearns and leverage real estate. It all fell apart. And it didn't turn around again until March of 2009 when finally there was enough of a stimulus package, so the deficit got up to 9% of GDP, which was enormous. And at that point, I said, okay, just you know, go buy stocks and play golf. Because with a 9% deficit, that's a huge tailwind, fiscal tailwind. You know, and it doesn't matter what they do, it's going gonna, it's gonna to get better. And then we had other things, you know, a few years later, change, modify things along the way. But so it's been the fiscal cycle. So under Volcker in 79, same thing happened. He starts raising rates. And what I'm saying is the rates exacerbated the inflation. They caused prices to go up more, mm. partially for what I told you, but also they raised costs of doing business, which you're doing today. So they, it adds to inflation in two ways. One, the cost of doing business, and the other way through just direct spending. Uh, and so um, and the cost of doing business is what you call forward prices, like on a commodity. When they raise rates, the forward prices of all the commodities go up. It's a direct price increase. They, in fact, they go up continuously at the at the rate at the policy rate, which is the academic definition of inflation: continuous increase in prices. That's what happens in the forward markets immediately with rate hikes. It, it's like it's like that is inflation under the old. But academic. he gets credit for for killing yeah. inflation. So what happened? So the um, inflation was running like twelve or fourteen percent, and the government budget deficit was only running at six or 7% today's level. That meant the real value of our savings, our financial assets, the money supply, if you want to call it, the core net money supply, was contracting at 6%. It was like running a 6% surplus. So 
the real value of the public debt was dropping. That's a huge fiscal tailwind contraction. And the whole thing collapsed like we've never seen before, because that was like a budget surplus, like, you know, larger than the ones we had at the end of 2000, at the end of 1999, 2000, which caused a major collapse. Okay, that was an even larger one. And, uh, and so if you want to say the, re the rates caused the recession, you'd have to say the rates caused the inflation, which took away the real public debt and caused the crash. Now, let me give an example for people listening about what I mean by the real money supply. So uh, how inflation causes a money shortage, right? If you, if you can go shopping with $200 in your pocket at today's price is fine, but then if prices double, you have to go shopping with $400 in your pocket. You have a money shortage. If Apple computer has $200 billion in cash that they think they need for their operations and prices double, they need $400 billion in cash, right? The money supply core needs of the economy, which isn't a technical term, but go up in proportion to inflation. So it, it creates a shortage of transactions money of net financial assets. If you've got so much in your savings saved up for retirement and prices double, now you need that much again. Now you're short money, you have to go out and work to earn it or do something, but you're caught, you're, your money has been taken away from you. And you've had people say, Inflation is a tax, it takes money away, which it does. It disappears, the value disappears, and people work because they need to accumulate the value behind that money. And so it, so that, that inflation in the 70s created a collapse in the real public debt, public debt adjusted for inflation, and just took apart the economy. And so it, it seems back. like yeah, you're so, saying that the business yeah. cycle, if yeah. you want to understand the business cycle, we have to pay attention to the fiscal side, not the monetary side, the fiscal side. Yeah. And what, what our deficit is or our surplus is drives what happens in the economy, not monetary policy. Well, they both do a little bit. I mean, right. to some degree, it depends on what they are. But when you get a budget deficit this high, it's going to dominate any differences in propensity to consume between borrowers and savers that might give the monetary policy some effect. If the, if the budget deficit was now 1% or 2%, I'd say, you know, we're in trouble. Okay, it's not going to cut it. So it's not, you know, you have to look at it in the context of everything else that's going on. If we were in a good economy and suddenly oil prices double, consumers getting crunched, I'd say good chance we're going to go into recession from this, even though, you know, so, but you, so you have to look at the magnitudes. Right. right now, the magnitude of deficit spending for a non-war scenario is unprecedented, non-cyclical recovery. We're not recovering now from, with unemployment at seven or eight percent, where we need to run our seven or eight percent deficit, we're, we're at a, unemployment's gone to a fifty-year low. After a year after they forecast a recession, how does their narrative explain that? Yeah, but well, my narrative explains it precisely. <laughs> Powell is asking. MMT theory says that in case of inflation excess, money supply can be removed from the economy by raising taxes. This doesn't yeah. seem to be politically feasible. Doesn't it invalidate the whole MMT approach? Well, MMT is not an approach, it's an understanding. And what it does is it, it's, that's a derivation of the understanding that if you think the problem is spending is too high, you can slow down spending by raising taxes. That's one way to slow down spending. So I don't think anybody today thinks the problem is spending is too high. They think prices are going up, which they call inflation, which they then, subliminally say that's because spending's too high. Or if we had less spending, we wouldn't have this inflation, this thing we call inflation. 
fine. If you want to reduce spending, raise taxes. But it's hard to say that excess spending was causing this, particularly with the um, supply shocks, with the oil price increases, with um, you know what's going on in housing. You have um, President Trump deciding that Canada is a bad country and they need to be punished because they're not charging us enough for lumber. It's like, okay, <laughs> I'm not gonna send you shopping for me <laughs> anywhere. And so he puts a 17% tariff on lumber and lumber prices go up. And so housing prices go up because that's the cost of building a house. So then President Biden comes along and says, you know what? They're still charging us too much. I don't like it either. Puts another 17%. So now we have 34% tariff on imported lumber. And so lumber's up at whatever it is. And they say, okay, we have inflation now and we need to like take money away from people to get the price of lumber down. It's like, what are you trying to do here? Right. So I mean, if everyone is spending to drop yeah. off, then you, you, you uh, under the way you see it, we'd still have all of this inflation for other policy well, reasons. If we're going to raise prices through tariffs, which we did um, across the board, you know, I forgot to mention that before. Part of the inflation is from these tariffs, and they're, they're both parties have just been behind this silly thing. Moving manufacturing back, that all drives up prices a lot, right? If we're going to respond to that, by taking people's money away so they can't buy these things that we produce domestically to crunch our domestic prices, which is what we were doing with the tariffs to support domestic prices. Now we want to bring them down by taking away people's money. We have an incoherent policy here. We have total contradictive policy. And, I think you might be getting at the heart of One of the questions yeah, that comes up all yeah, the time is, yeah. if this isn't an, an experiment or an approach and it just is the way it is, Yes. why do so many people fight back about it and feel so charged up about the issue. If this is just because the way it is, and why simple. are we always taught that it's different? Because yeah. they don't want to give me the satisfaction of being right. <laughs> Aside from they're, that. They're, they're waiting for me to die. I'm 74. They're going to <laughs> hopefully a couple more years and then they'll then they'll be okay with it. <laughs> but aside from that, why do you think there's- There is no, I don't know. I, it's been a mystery. It really is. And uh, it, it's, it's, I've, I've done a lot of things. And when I was a fund manager from 1982 to 1997 for 15 years, and I'm, not, I'm not promoting my fund or anything. I don't run it. I've been out of it longer than I've been in it. But we had the highest um, risk-adjusted returns of anybody. It, we, I didn't have a losing trade for 15 years. And the point of saying this is after 14 years, I'd come up with an idea and nobody liked it. Nobody liked any of the trades I had for the first 14. And even after 14 years of winning trades, they still didn't, no, I don't, that's not gonna work. I'm, I'm not gonna do that. So it, I'm kind of used to the idea that when I point out something obvious, it just gets denied. And I just is it, see is that. It, is it, who benefits Who benefits by the current system? So if the system is different than everyone yeah. thinks it is, and you talked before about the implications yeah. and viable options that are not pursued if you don't yeah. Yeah. acknowledge this. Yeah. So talk to me about that. So who benefits so, from the so, system now and how right. would it look different under? So if, if it was acknowledged and understood and people took a clean sheet of paper approach to policy, I think the real wealth of the nation within a couple, three or four years would double. Now there'd be a fight for who gets that. You know, if it's public transportation, oh, well, that's going to go to lower incomes. It's going to be more super yachts. It goes to, you know, there'd be so, maybe some struggle, but on that, you know, this rising tide lifts all boats. It's just maybe some would get lifted more than others. And so people would be unhappy with that. But it, everybody gains that I know. Maybe bankruptcy attorneys lose. I don't know. 
but it's not, it's nobody that you would consider, uh, you know, part of this current debate that's keeping it from happening. So the pie gets bigger. Yeah. 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 And yeah. do you think there's an assumption that uh, a political assumption that it, it would redistribute wealth? Is that what the fear is? It, it, it might be, but that can only come from not understanding that it's, it's growing the pie and not not cutting. What they're doing is cutting it and redistributing. They're doing both. I'm just growing it, and they don't do it. I mean, there's some concern that uh, the earth can't handle it on a resource basis, but it can all be non, um, uh, you know, disruptive type of growth in terms. You know, it doesn't. None of it has to be uh, disruptive to the environment or the air quality or the or the temperature or anything. It can all be directed to promote. You know that. Look at what happened with COVID within two weeks. You could see China from space for the first time. Yeah. Right. right? Emissions dropped. Extraordinary. Like, yeah, 50%. All right. So like we won the war against global warming. You know, none of this temperatures were reversing. And and it was all done by um, what they call it, non-essentials. Uh, non we gave up non-essentials. There was enough food. Everybody had a place to live. You know, it wasn't like there were any kind of privation of any particular kind to note of. And so it was all like, and so what did we try to do afterward? Did anybody say, okay, look, let's get, let's bring that the that economy so back. Well, except yeah. that we were bored, but otherwise, and then yeah. people, why, there was a horrible yeah, health they, tragedy. But anybody, was there any discussion about, look, we've won the war against climate change and everything else. So let's bring this back in a way that doesn't get us back to where we were. No, instead, we just went full speed ahead to get us back to where we were. Missions are now worse than they were before. And now we're talking about how much it's going to cost us to get them down to stop growing and then maybe go down 5% over the next 30 years. We were already there. So like how much political will can there is there actually to do this stuff? I don't know. But if you give me the political will and tell me what it is, I can tell you how to get there. <laughs> are there are there conditions? So could every yeah. country do this? Are there conditions yes. necessary for MMT to work? Well, MMT isn't something that works. Okay. Any, All right. Sorry. So is, are there any constraints? Yeah, so look, any country can sustain full employment if it wants to. Any country. There's no, there's no reason you can't do that. You know, employment is a cost, not a benefit. You got to go to work and do stuff. You know, it's like I remember when, when Greece's uh, problem first hit, the, the Europeans, the Germans are say, were saying things like, well, you know, the Greeks are lazy, they don't want to work. So what's your solution? Oh, well, we're going to put them all out of work. It's like, okay, like, what are you doing? You know, there's no like coherent discussions about these things. There's no logically consistent discussions. So, um, do you have to, yeah. do you have so to do have we control want, over yes. your current, I mean, do you have to have some sort of, you know, are there currency issues or there, well, you know, if your real, funding isn't in your so, currency or there, so any, let me give you a mainstream fundamental, the real wealth. What is it? It's everything you can produce domestically that it adds to your pile of stuff, that's goods and services, right? Everything you can import adds to your pile. It makes it larger. Everything you export makes it smaller. That's your real wealth, all right? Your currency is a, is a numeraire, so you can you know, uh, value it and assess it. It affects the distribution of who gets that real wealth. You know, I used to say in, in Australia that they, uh, there were boats out in the harbor the coal would leave, and I, it was in New, University of Newcastle with Bill Mitchell, the coal gets loaded onto the ships and it goes to Hong Kong and they empty it and it comes back full of television sets. And, you know, Australia's real wealth is everything it can produce domestically minus it loses the coal 
and then it gains the television sets. And it, it doesn't really matter what your level your Australian dollar is, what your deficit is or anything else. Your real wealth is going to be whatever you can produce plus what you import minus what you export. And I said, but what all these numbers do is they're used to determine who has to dig the coal and who gets to watch the television sets. Okay, who in South Africa has to mine the gold and who gets the men's suits that come back from London? Okay, so these are all these distributional issues and they are determined by public policy continuously and they can be adjusted. But if you stick with your fundamentals, which is how do you get your domestic output as high as possible? Well, you want to have everybody working. So anybody who's not working, you're losing that real wealth. Okay, real terms of trade, you want to be able to do the reason to export is to import, because when you export, you're sending things away. When you import, you're getting things in. You want to maximize your real wealth. You want to get the most in terms of imports for your exports. Right? These are just fundamentals. Mm. They're in the oldest economics textbooks, and they're, they're universal. Uh, it's, and you can call it MMT, but it's, it's no reason to. Uh, so, um, it sounds so like it's, you, it's, it's, it's yeah. common sense. So, let me, so when let you me... look at the real world, any country can optimize its domestic production with domestic full employment, no matter what the IMF or anybody else tells them. They can then optimize their real terms of trade, exports, import, and they can do that. But they have to understand how the system works to be able to use it to their ends that they want to use it to. So Vince is asking, Warren, yeah. what should one's portfolio look like in an environment such as this, where the Fed yeah. keeps wrongly raising rates to fight inflation and the government yeah. keeps indexing higher? So look to the stock market in Argentina. Sorry, you know, it goes, it's sky high. It's up 500% or more. Well, it's in pesos, right? What are they worth? I don't know, maybe nothing. But the number goes up. So you can say that about the U.S. stock market, if they keep doing this. They're adding earnings and income to everybody, which includes corporate earnings. And they're all forecasting lower corporate earnings. I don't, I don't believe it. Now, maybe S&P 500, but if you look at the corporate earnings as a whole, they're going to go sky high with all this deficit spending. And, uh, and the numerical value of the stocks would go up. But is it going to buy more? Is it going to stay ahead of inflation? Because they're also creating inflation. Don't forget, like when you pay interest, it's kind of like a stock split or a stock dividend. You're just paying out more of the same thing and giving it to everybody. You're diluting it. You know, and the value goes down, I guess, unless you're Tesla or something. But for the most part, for every other case I've seen, the value goes down when you pay a stock dividend or do a stock split, right? And I guess there's the last time they did. So um, uh, so from a nominal point of view, investment, from a real point of view, how do you ensure your returns going to keep up with your cost of living? That's another issue entirely, mm. okay? You can buy tips bonds and take a lower nominal return, but be insured of a 1% return against CPI. But now you're at risk of whatever that means going on. So. You know, ultimately, we're at risk of the government, of our institutions, of our legal systems, of, you know, of our ability to have what do you call, you know, property rights and things like that, you know, all of which can vanish and has vanished in many parts of the world, you know, in a blink. I think somebody who escaped Germany said the only real wealth is what's in your head and what you can put in side of your toothpaste tube or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> it's a, it's a, quite, quite a dire, 
you know, yeah, so I, I don't know mindset, how, I don't, but I mean, I don't know how far you want to go with that question. <laughs> so Paul asking long-term, what's the solution to prevent us citizens from needing a thousand dollars to buy a sack of groceries? Like what's happened in other countries? Well, I think it's just a matter of time because even a 2% inflation will get to that point. And the question is whether incomes will keep up with it. What's our real standard of living? What's the growth in the real GDP and what's, how's that being distributed? And is this real GDP, what's the quality of it? Because if we pass laws against marijuana and then put people in jail and hire guards and build jails, that's all GDP. It's like, okay, you know, so that doesn't, to me, that doesn't enhance anybody's standard of living. So, uh, but if we can get real growth that really enhances our standard of living and isn't taking it away long-term because it's degrading the environment, you know, you've got to throw all these measures in, then uh, that, that, to me, I look at that as our, you know, as a long-term goal, but I'm not in office. You have to, we have to look at what the long-term goals are of people in office. And usually it's, how do I get by the next election, which is two years, mm-hmm. which comes to, to my campaign finance reform proposal. Yeah. Which is yeah. Can, there's a there's a there's a, a short termism yeah. both in yeah. markets and in politics. Yeah. That's yeah. A little yeah. yeah. And so you're asking me for long term. It's like why bother? Yeah. <laughs> right. V- vote maybe. Uh, yeah. so someone asking about Triffin's dilemma. Yeah. Um, so the idea that deficits, um, if deficits continue, steady stream of dollars, you get a glut of dollars, it erodes confidence in the value of the dollar, and maybe it no longer becomes the world's reserve currency, something to that effect. Yeah. Is, that, is that something that you think about, worry about would be a... Is, it's, it's, kind of, it's, it's kind of already been said because um, when the government spends or gives people money that they spend, you only buy something from a willing seller. You don't f- stuff dollars into anybody trying to sell something. If you sell your house for $500,000, it's because you'd rather have the dollars in your house. Nobody's stuffing dollars into you you don't want. So at, at the end of the day, because we have a market economy, all the dollars that get stuffed out there are dollars people want, and uh, either to, you know, and uh, including what savings. Some people decide not to spend their money at the end of the day. They'd rather have the money than the house they could buy because they want to. That's a decision they've made. That's their savings desire. So in a market economy, you, can't, you don't have savings gluts and things like that. That's not an applicable concept maybe in a command economy or something, but not, not what we have. In terms of reserve currency, again, what does that even mean? It used to be, you know, with gold, who had the most gold. And the U.S. went into World War II with more gold than anybody, but we had no guns or boats. And other countries had no gold and lots of guns or boats, and it took us four years to catch up, right? So uh, what, what do you mean by a reserve currency? Why does it matter? All the arguments I've seen are just way off base. They're... they're I don't even bother to read them because they're of no consequence. I, I really don't care about what they're saying. I don't, I don't give it any weight one way or the other as being something important. Uh, mostly the, the dollar is a numeraire for transactions. It's not, and that's different from being a reserve currency and they worry about it, whether oil is priced in dollars. I mean, I don't care if oil is priced in paper clips. It doesn't really matter. Whoever buying and selling is going to look at the exchange rates for what they really want and actually want and they'll transact and that if the other person doesn't have it they'll sell in the fx market for what they want so what matters is currencies people save in accumulate in and not not what they use as a numeraire for a price it's just it's just of no you know economic consequence so i don't know if 
I get all parts of your question there? Yeah, I think it did. Nikhil is asking, by extension of your thinking, would you support UBI, universal basic income? Okay, so what we have now is a, a UBI of over a trillion dollars, almost trillion, 1.2 or $3 trillion a year, but only for people who already have money in proportion to how much they have. So we had the Fed decided that there's going to be a UBI. <laughs> it's going to be only for those people. And it's going to be 50% larger than the military budget rather than zero. Okay, so I don't support that one. The, uh, the, yeah, the interest you're getting on, on all those treasury yeah, bonds. I think, the, I think the rate should be zero permanently, always. In my base case for analysis, if you ask me to do a model, it'll have a zero rate policy in it. And then if you want to say, well, the burden of proof is on you to tell me why that should be 1% or 10%. Then we can walk through it. And I'm sure by the end of the walkthrough, you'll say, okay, maybe there's another reason, but you're right, it's better at zero. So I have not come up with any reason to not uh, divert from my base case, which is a permanent zero rate. I'm open for suggestions, but I haven't come up <laughs> Do with you one think, yet. So, I mean, we just, but, we just said but, make but, the feds but the ignorant. other problem with UBI is if you look at the money story for an economy like the US or anybody else, it's best thought of it's this way. You have a government that wants to provision itself. It wants public health workers, educators, soldiers, jet planes. And so well, how does it get those people? So starting from nothing, what we do is we uh, levy a tax, a tax liability, and I'll use a property tax so you can understand it. Put a tax on everybody's house. You can say income tax, but it's a transactions tax and people work, they don't work. So rather, it still works, but it's complicated. So for purposes of this discussion, we'll just say a real estate tax. So you put a tax on everybody's house. Now people need U.S. dollars or they're going to lose their house. It's going to get sold in action and at auction if the tax doesn't get paid. And the only source of those dollars is the government. So it starts offering jobs for what it actually wants. We'll pay $50,000 for a soldier, $70,000 for a public health worker or whatever. And so the tax created people who need to sell things to get the money to pay the tax. So the purpose of the tax is to create sellers. Why do we want sellers? So that the government can buy their stuff, their labor to provision the government. So now the government hires what it wants, buys food for the cafeteria, puts up army bases, pays the people, and then the tax gets paid. So that's the money story. Tax liability, unemployment, people looking for paid work, people looking to sell things. Okay, government buys what it wants. That's the whole point of the exercise. Then the tax actually gets paid. If you went and said to these people, here's the tax liability, but we're going to have a UBI, I'm going to give you all the money to pay the tax, then the government can't spend anything. It can't provision itself. It can't hire anybody. Why would they? They've been given the money to pay the tax, right? Now, that's a very cursory look at it, you know, simple. It's, mm -hmm. But it's not, but it's an abstraction, but it's, it's, it makes the point. Mm -hmm. So if you give everybody enough UBI to cover the tax liability, the currency, it's hyperinflation. The currency doesn't buy anything. It's the same as if you didn't have the tax liability to begin with. Right. Okay. And so the the, the money is the tax credit for the tax liability. Without, without a tax, tax credits aren't worth anything. If you just give everybody the tax credits to pay the tax, it, that's it. It's over. The government can't then spend more tax credits to buy anything because nobody needs them anymore. So UBI in very small amounts, probably get away with it but it carries the risk of interfering with the government provisioning itself, which is absolutely critical. Without that, everything goes away. We're back in the Stone Age. 
so again, it's a live wire, kind of like the debt ceiling. Mm -hmm. And so if, if you look at what you're trying to accomplish with it, there are other ways to do it where you don't risk shutting down the whole system. You don't want to have these nuclear landmines out there. Yeah. Uh, like liquidity crisis. It's another nuclear landmine. It doesn't need to be there. It's arbitrary. It's thrown in by bad regulation. It's well, not part Go one ahead. last question. One last question I want to squeeze in because we are we are out of time and I know we could talk okay. about this and I'm sure we're going to have to do a follow up because we're probably going to get so many questions from people who couldn't okay. watch live and are going to are going to watch it later. If you're if if we're talking about the Fed rate hikes actually stimulating the economy. Yes. Is the reverse true then when they start to ease? Yeah. Does that have a break effect and sure will does. that be problematic? That's what I said in 09. I said they're going to they started cutting rates rates went to zero and they um, cut rates 500, 600 basis points. And I'm look, they just, re they just stopped paying $400 billion of income to the economy. This is a depressing effect. This will, this is a fiscal drag. The deficit's that much lower and it's not going to stimulate the economy or anything. It's going to slow it down. And if you look at zero rate policies around the world, none of them are associated with credit expansions or growth or yeah. anything. That's right. Yeah. yeah. But you're always thinking it's the chicken and egg because you're thinking yeah. that they're yeah. zero because of the recession, low growth. And may, maybe they were, but then you just get stuck in it. And that happened in 2001 when um, rates were cut by Greenspan and the economy was dying. And I was actually invited with my wife. We went to Andrew Card, who I knew through my car company, invited me to, the, he was White House chief of staff, and to discuss this with him. And the first thing I discussed was interest rates, just like I spoke with you mm. about the rate cuts. He, he says, well, why would anybody expect this to help the economy? I said, it, it, it won't and it isn't. He said, well, we're in trouble, aren't we? He said, what do we do? I said, you're going to have to increase the deficit. Well, said, that's well, the other thing. So the fiscal spending could yeah. offset that, though. If it's a drop, yeah, well, you need well, Card, fiscal. Card agreed. This was 2002, February, I think. And he said, how high is it going to have to get? And I said, I think $700 billion at the time. And he said, we don't have much time, do we? I said, no. He said, thank you. I got a nice note from him. A week later, President Bush made the statement. And by the way, I wasn't like a Bush supporter or anything like that. Uh, I don't want to get that part wrong. But uh, he made a statement saying, they asked him about uh, the deficit. And he said, I don't look at numbers on a piece of paper. I look at jobs. And I don't know if you remember, but that guy passed every tax cut he could imagine, including retroactive tax cuts. He got through every possible spending increase you could imagine. Okay, including prescription drugs. And it all came out of that meeting. And by the fourth, third quarter, the deficit was up to $200 billion. The economy turned around and it didn't cost them the election. And so if you're worried about why the government's spending all this money on prescription drugs, it's like, it's my fault, <laughs> personally. And uh, <laughs> it, it came out of that meeting and it's still there. Nobody's dared to Turn it around since, but that's why they did it. That's why they did it. Brave is the politician who wants to go near that. Right, I, right, I, right. Without opening a whole nother can of worms, it just occurred to me when we're talking about spending and how, how does Japan, how, what, what do you think of Japan? How does that fit into this conversation? Yeah. Because they uh, have very low growth, don't they? They've kind of been stuck in this low growth. It, it hasn't been bad. You know, the real growth has been 1%, a little more. And, uh, they have an institutional structure that has very high uh, built-in things to like not reasons not to spend income, and and it's a and it's an export-led society, which you don't want to do, uh, because in an export-led society you 
keep wages down because exporters only care about their costs. They're not selling anything domestically. They're all selling overseas. So they have no interest in the domestic economy. So whenever the exporters get in control, your wages tend to stay low and policies come in to support your exporters. And that help and the whole low inflation thing is keeping down the cost of exporters. So they have different political agendas. Now we almost went there. President Obama at one point said, um, we consume too much and we don't export enough. We have to export more and consume less. And I'm going, oh no. <laughs> and because this is your real standard of living, your real terms of trade. And then he has Jeff Immelt from General Electric, our biggest exporter, you know, his economic guru there. And it's like, oh no. But fortunately, it didn't materialize that way. But the US runs a massive trade deficit. So it enhances our real standard of living. Our pile of stuff is that much bigger. Japan's is not. They go the another, another concept that yeah, people always. Yeah point to yeah. as a negative, but yeah. Warren, we, I, we are out of time. I, this has okay. been an amazing conversation. So fascinating. I think it gave all of us, we could keep going. So I've, I've just got okay. to hook myself. Otherwise I'm going to ask you another question. Um, but I didn't, I didn't duck any of your hard questions. No, no, not at all. <laughs> Thank you for that. Sure. They're not hard. They were very elementary, but I think we really need to understand this because it okay. is so contrary to what so many of us uh, have been told and are told. Um, but but an issue that keeps coming up, as I mentioned, so many of our viewers wanted to have a deep dive on it. So okay. you gave us a great framework and background, and I hope you'll come back again uh, so we can continue it. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks to all of you for watching. We'll be back with the daily briefings. Some of them may be happening. We'll be back at four. Thanks. Take care. What's up, revolutionaries? Thanks for tuning in to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. For more content like this, head over to realvision.com and get unfiltered access to the very best, brightest, and biggest names in finance.